millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Old Matt Devitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hi, Kieran. Uh, hello there, Owen. And Ken Erdy's over here. Yeah, I need it. I'm asking you a wonder, gentlemen. I'm going to ask you this, Murph, actually, because I quite like your top today. Would it change? <laughs> okay. Would it change your opinion of my professionalism if halfway through the show we took a break and I asked to swap my blue T-shirt here for your lovely green jumper? Uh, would you feel? Would you think less of me? Another halftime break, we think. Well, should, shouldn't you just be focused on, on, on presenting the show? I mean, what are you doing? To be you know, honest, if you're thinking about this, if you're thinking about this, then what, what, what the hell are you doing? I like, don't really think this show? analogy works at all. I mean, in the you know, in the sense of a football match, shirt swapping is something which does happen from time to time, but in the sense of just normal day to day office environment, what? people yeah. don't often swap. Clothes. You know what? I've worked with you for ten years. You've actually never asked. To it swap it would be, it doesn't, will be deeply strange for someone to, out of context like that, ask to swap uh, shirts. Okay, well, I'll forget about the clunky analogies, Ken. I'm going to ask you what you thought of Mario Balotelli swapping <laughs> shirts last night. What? what? Forget about that first forty I seconds. We were of just the having a, I thought we were just having a chat. Not as weird as it would have been for you to ask uh, him to swap your clothes. Him? I'm just. I'm right here, kid. Um. Yeah, I know. I, I can see you. No, what I, I I mean, I can't believe that this is a, a thing again. I mean, Brendan Rodgers has had experience of having dealt with a situation a bit like this last year when Sacco uh, did the same mm-hmm. thing in a match against Chelsea, swapped with uh, Eto. Eto, clearly a hero, hero of his. I think Sacco had asked Eto on that occasion, whereas in this occasion it was Pepe who ran over to Balotelli uh, looking for his shirt. Balotelli swapped shirts with him at halftime. Well, thank God for that. Uh, because <laughs> because if it hadn't been for Balotelli doing that, people might have talked a little bit more about the 3-0 that was uh, the situation at that time. Mm. I mean, luckily, Balotelli, we're, we're talking about Balotelli now. Oh, don't worry. 
we're going to have time to talk about the goals as well. That's the that's the luxury of having almost two hours uh, two hours of airtime. So we will get to that. Is Balotelli, in ways, Ken, as beneficial to Brendan Rodgers as Suarez was last year? For, no. the, for this reason, that he's the rod, he's the Rodner, he's taking everything. He's the mud guard. Are forgetting, yeah, he's, he's the mud guard. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't think he is actually. Uh, yeah, I don't think. Probably prefer to have Suarez sit in there, I guess. With all the because, goals yeah, and so because forth. I don't think it is. I don't think it is a clear cut benefit. Even if even if there is maybe a sort of a short term sense of a relief of pressure in having this sort of oh look over there, look at that situation, Marabelotelli. No, we don't stand for that at this club. Um, I don't. I don't know if um, it works on everybody. <clears throat> I mean, ultimately, the audience that a manager needs to really be concerned about are his own players. They're the ones who are going to decide really whether he succeeds or or not. They're the ones who whose opinion of him really matters. You know, if enough of them decide, hang on, this guy, no, not for me. If enough of them make that, if enough of them that switch goes in their head, the manager's done. It doesn't even matter if the owner really likes him. If the players don't, if the players don't have confidence in him anymore, then is that the way it looks? That the players don't have confidence in him? No, but I'm, I'm, what I mean is that uh, the best thing, obviously, for any manager is to win a bunch of games because then everybody's happy and everybody likes. You know, even the people who are unhappy have to have to button it because everybody's winning. And and this and this is a bit like Liverpool were last season. You know, um, it was uh, it was kind of a happy camp. Uh, it's not like that anymore. Um, this is when it gets really difficult being a manager. And while it might, while it might seem, oh, you know, Balotelli, well, at least there's Balotelli to talk about. I really don't think that it's it's not it's not as good as winning a game. You'd much rather guys <laughs> score a goal. Than you'd, okay. you'd win a game definitely. Lots of great stuff coming up. Munster's Dave Foley chats to us ahead of the Champions Cup game against Saracens tomorrow night at a sold out home. Now he's a player who's had to wait years for his chance. Came in. Really broke through towards the end of last season, played the quarterfinal and semi-final, and making a big impact now and a huge part of the team. He's also in Joe Schmidt's squad for the November Internationals announced this week. US Murph on his beloved San Francisco Giants, who are mid-World Series at the moment, their third in five years. When we first started talking to Brian Murphy a number of years back, Kieran, mm-hmm. he the idea of the San Francisco Giants being in a World Series was laughable. Maybe where's Lucky Charm? Yeah, I mean it's mad. And three World Series in five years does sound kind of impressive but they have actually been terrible in the years where they haven't actually got to the World Series so. Just reminding all their supporters of how lucky they are yeah, Maybe exactly. that's the way to do it as a sports team You don't want to become first and then second and then first and then second yeah, I mean, First, last, first, last is Total to dominance do is boring as well And uh, do you know what? We're going to be talking about this guy today Final play, take me through it Well I'm the best corner in the game When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree that's the result you're going to get Don't you ever talk about me talking about you. Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you, I'm going to shut it for you real quick. L-O-B. How would you fancy boring into the mind of Richard Sherman there on a regular basis as one of the many tasks of our guest today, Dr. Mike Gervais, sports psychologist to the Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. You sound like you would fancy it, Murph. Ken, you you don't. You look like you're, you're thinking, nah, I'll leave Sherman to his own devices. There. No, I, I would like to hear more from Richard Sherman. I think he's a captivating speaker. <laughs> So yeah, I'd like to. Who was talking? Who was talking about you, Crabtree? <laughs> I think there's a there's a second pause there where you thought, well, isn't this obvious? I just had a scrap at him. <laughs> Crabtree didn't, didn't he Crabtree. mention him, mention him in the first answer as well? No, no. Okay. Well, he she, she uh, he said a sorry receiver like, like Crabtree. That. Like I think it was like that as opposed to like Crabtree. Either way. It should have been obvious. I listened to that Certainly interviewer. I actually listened to that interviewer. His name escapes me now. Uh, she was all over the news uh, at that Aaron time. Andrews. Aaron Andrews talking about that. I think it was in a podcast with Bill Simmons about just that that moment when this thing is going totally off script. 
And I think, if I remember correctly, she was thinking she maybe, she was asked then to throw back because there's only so much controversy the, uh, whoever it was, ESPN, whoever was actually looking for, really. Yeah. Just, whereas she kind of felt she maybe should have just kept that interview going. Of course she could have kept, should have yeah. kept going. I mean, but what's controversial about that? Her, uh, her concern was language. Well, she didn't have well, the concern. No, I think, he I think she was. Oh, I think sorry, she the concern to say, oh, yeah, of, yeah. The, of Fox. But he the hadn't. TV network. But he didn't swear. Fox. Yeah, right. but uh, but he might have been they thought he was about to. <laughs> well, the I mean, worst thing that could possibly happen. What happens? On, the worst thing that could possibly happen in American television. Someone is going to swear on American television. Oh no! I know. I mean, I was shocked as well, Ken. I was shocked at even the prospect of someone swearing. Well, that was Dr. Mike Gervais, really interesting guy. He's got a lot of other strings to his bow as well as being involved with the Seahawks. So looking forward to that chat a little bit later. Before we get into all that, I'd like to introduce a brand new slot to the programme. Please enjoy the second captain's virtual mail satchel. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh, God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody f***ing with my click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. <laughs> Well, I like the intro to this new slot. I'm what, sure what are we calling it? The mail satchel. Uh, virtual mail satchel, yeah. Oh, okay. Today's copyright scum. Copyright issues, obviously. Today's scum from around the country. Is? Is John and Limerick. <laughs> hey, John. <laughs> Hi, John. Hi there. Long time listener, second time emailer. Mm. It's a, a twist on a very cliched mm, opening okay. there, but it gets better. Couldn't help notice on Thursday's show that when Owen asked Ken was he looking forward to the forthcoming European Champions Cup weekend, there's more than a hint of sarcasm in Ken's voice about how excited he was about the rugby. Added to this is the montage we get of the Ken mouthing off of Ken mouthing off about John Hayes and his tears of pride before the Ireland England game in Croke Park. Why does Ken hate rugby? Asks uh, John and Limerick here. My own theory, John has a theory, Ken, yeah. is that he went to Blackrock College or some other rugby-mad Dublin school and was forced to play in first year. Young Ken hated every second he was on the wing and prayed for second year to come when he could disappear into the crowd and go back to reading the Iliad and Ulysses. Come back to us, Ken. Would like to hear about what you have to say about any other sport but soccer. Kind regards, John and Limerick. Yeah, I've actually been in touch with John in Limerick. Funny, funny enough, I must have got a preview of the mail satchel. <laughs> uh, me and John are, are quite good friends now, actually. Oh, email buddies. Yeah, we're email buddies. I don't have time to. I didn't have time to read out the entire. Uh, I mean, John went into a lot of detail, so maybe you got into that with him off air, did you? Yeah, you really got stuck into John and Limerick. No, I I just uh, I wrote back to John saying that um, I I have uh, always watched the Ireland Rugby Internationals ever since I'm I was older. I think I was born on the same day Ireland played one of them. You know, that's what I'm saying. Six Nations time doesn't get any better than that, Kev. Uh, I've seen group, most yeah. most of every Rugby World Cup since 1991. Uh, Even the ones held in the Southern Hemisphere, Ken, they are very fiendishly early morning starts. Um, but. The thing was, I didn't go to the right kind of school. And, and I mean, it was when I grew up, I think, that I realized that rugby fans look down on people like me. <laughs> <laughs> and just the moment of that realization, I've just never quite been able to warm to the game in the same in So the John same had way. it totally wrong. You didn't go to Blackrock College. You, you didn't actually go to a rugby mad school. Uh, no, no, I didn't go right, to okay. the school that I went to. They didn't play rugby. In fact, I, I kind of I would see it on television and wonder where it where it came from. What is <laughs> where, this thing? What is the intersection between this thing I see in the television and real life? <laughs> it was only kind of when I went to uh, to university and met people from from those areas of of the country that I uh, I understood uh, what was going on. 
John in Limerick, thanks for kicking off our new uh, new slot on the show. Seems to have gone reasonably well. We might uh, throw another one in there next week. Perhaps before Christmas. Yeah. Or indeed somewhere in the spring, summer of 2015. Let's chat to Munster's second row, Dave Foley, now ahead of the game tomorrow. Uh, Dave, you just came, thanks for talking to us. First of all, you came off, uh, or have come off a last minute win last weekend. You're about to play in this sold out match against Saracens. Uh, you've been named in a 37 man Ireland squad. Is this the most exciting time of your career? Yeah, it, it 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 has to be the probably the most exciting. Um, you know, I suppose I've waited a long time for for my shot because um, there's been unbelievable competition in, in Munster for second row. So it's kind of all coming to a head now, and I've got a few opportunities. And um, you know, I've, I've probably taken my chance when I've when I've got it, and I've probably needed to take my chance. So. Um, you know, yeah, it has. It's been incredibly exciting. I saw you uh, make the point a while back that, because I'm sure it's tough, and a lot of players have had to go through this period where they're waiting and they're not sure if it's going to happen for them in uh, in a team as big as Munster. But at, at some point, you began to focus more on yourself and stop worrying about what else was around you, what else was going on. It was just about what you could do. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. You know, there's been a huge amount of distraction. As I said, there was a huge amount of competition in my position and. Um, all those fellas seemed to be Irish internationals and, um, you know, I was just more focused on early when are, they, when are those guys going to move on rather than focusing on myself and me doing something about it. And I suppose it's only been in the last kind of two years that I've kind of come to understand um, the mental side of things and just focusing on myself. And I think it's been a huge help in the last two years and I've just taken things back into my own hands and, um, you know, it's it's... It's, it's worked so far for me. Were you close to breaking point at any stage? Were you close to giving up on the whole thing? Yeah, look, God, I suppose, uh, you know, when I was, uh, I suppose for a lot of my friends um, that were playing the Munster had kind of broken in at 22 years of age, 23 years of age, and they were certainly there, thereabouts, and to be honest, I didn't really see light at the end of the tunnel because, as I've talked about before, the competition yeah. in my position, and I just, I felt like I couldn't really get a breakthrough and um, you know it was mentally it was breaking at times and you know I just I wondered what it was for me and um, yeah of course there's been a few times uh, along the path where I could have I could have I could have left this but um, look I'm in a good spot now and I'm glad I stuck with it Was that just a, a switch that flicked in your own head or was it the case of talking to a few people about it and getting a, a, a steer on it? Yeah that's it it's talking to talking to the older lads again you know what I mean and you know that they kind of point you in the right direction, and you know I had to sit down with Paul a few times, and he, to be honest, he told me straight out that I was kind of wasting my talent, and I needed to focus on myself and ultimately train harder. I probably wasn't training as hard as I should have been. I probably thought I was training incredibly hard, but compared to how I train now, it's just chalk and cheese, to be honest. That's an interesting conversation to have with a guy of O'Connell's stature. Did you seek him out for the advice, or did he pull you aside one day at training? Yeah, he he actually just rang me and we went for breakfast. He he said, "Do you want to do you want to have a chat?" And I didn't really know what he wanted to chat about. And I'm sure he probably seen my frustration at the time. And you know, I was just probably from his eyes, I was a bit bit lackadaisical. But um, from my point of view, I was as I thought I was training hard. But you know, he kind of just said, "Look, if you want to if you want to break in, you got to be doing extras outside of rugby and not just doing what." 
the lads in your position are doing because the only way to get better is to do more than what they're doing. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great point and something I certainly took on board. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I'm sure, as you say, I mean, you were training, I would imagine, unbelievably hard, making all the sacrifices that a professional sports person has to do. But in Paul O'Connell's world, <laughs> you maybe have to make one or two more uh, bits of effort. That's that's exactly it. You hit the nail on the head. He's, uh, he trains very differently to um, how other people train and... Um, you know, I could see it, but and I thought I was training as hard, but realistically, I wasn't. You know, and you know, I I honestly think though that how I train now is is the difference um, between me breaking in and, and not breaking in at all, and probably having to walk away from it or move elsewhere. You know, and, yeah, it must have been a confidence boost all the same, though, David. In one way, I'm not sure if it was to know that Paul O'Connor must have clearly rated you highly enough to have that conversation with you. Yeah, look. The, that 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 in itself is absolutely fantastic. You know, um, I've watched him. I've watched him a huge amount. I've been in the system since I was kind of seventeen, eighteen years of age. So I've kind of grown up around um, not just Paul, but you know, the two Donicas and and Mick O'Driscoll was there at the time. So there's four internationals there, and um, you try to take a little bit from each of them, and and um, you know, you try bring a li- bring a little bit of all that into your own game. Now that you're in, Dave, has it gone from down to being the team to actually trying to really make an impact because I've heard players say this over the years that when you first get in a side it's really just about there's almost a joy in having the jersey and in playing but the more you play the more you realise you actually have to make an impact while you're there Yeah that's just it and I do get a huge buzz from from playing but um, that's the biggest thing is trying to make an impact while you have the jersey in your hand because it can be taken out in the morning through somebody that's better than you or, or or ultimately injury but um you know i had a chat with with axel last year and there's a few uh fellas that kind of fall into that second uh season syndrome where you know they break in the first season they play great because it's brilliant and then the second season is uh they don't seem to bring what they brought from the season before and that's something that's that mentally was very important for me that I kick on and just play well for Munster and and um, you know ultimately try hold my position. When you get a, the the news you're in a, an Ireland squad, is that another confidence boost? Just that you know that not only does a guy like Anthony Foley rate you so highly, but a, a, an accomplished coach like Joe Schmidt also, somebody from outside the camp, obviously sees a lot in you. Yeah, it's you know it's it's brilliant. Everybody wants to play for Ireland that plays any that plays um, any level of rugby. You know what I mean? I, I've kind of, you know, dreamt of playing for Munster and for, and for Ireland um, from a very young age. So, Joe Schmidt is obviously an incredible coach and um, it's incredible to be involved in, in the November tests and I'm just hoping to to keep playing well for Munster in the meantime and next week and, you know, kind of see where it takes me from there. It was pretty dramatic last week. Um, that's great for supporters and it's brilliant for neutrals watching. Does it provide a boost to the players? That when is, it that, is there a little bit of a different feeling when the win happens in those circumstances? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I was just saying to the lads, it's probably, it's the only way to win really. You get a, you get a real buzz after the, after the final whistle. You know, there was no more play at the end and, um, you know, obviously, it's, it's at the same time, it's not ideal, and it's certainly not ideal to play how we played in the first half. Um, but it's probably more the relief at the end of it that that we got the result, and um, you know, it was a great buzz, and, and you feel it for a day or two. But you quickly get back to business then, uh, with the view of series ahead this weekend. Yeah, you have to get back quickly. It's a Friday night kickoff. The lads are are ready. Training's gone well. Training's gone very well this week. Um, 
everybody's incredibly focused and it's been uh, really intense and um, there's been a little bit of niggling training which you'd expect because people are stressed um, but training has gone brilliantly this week and uh, we have a captain's run now tomorrow and um, and then we, we, we're good to play it at, uh, at 7.45 on, on, on Friday Alright, a little bit of niggle you're not going to tell us who's fighting who are you? <laughs> I wouldn't say fighting <laughs> no but you know yourself fellas are a bit stressed bit of tension and all that yeah exactly exactly it'll all be worth it and it'll all be worth it Friday night yeah it sounds good listen Dave best of luck in the game and it's absolutely great to talk to you thanks so much brilliant thank you great to hear a guy like that who had to wait quite a long time and clearly had serious doubts about whether it was going to happen for him uh, and then eventually does happen at least in part because of having lunch with Paul O'Connell that's mm. the key to Irish sporting success particularly Munster sporting success is if Paul O'Connell asks you to go for lunch, definitely don't take a rain check. Yeah. Because it could be the key to your future career. You've got to work harder. Kill. I mean, I, I would, if, if you know, you don't have time to waste though. I mean, you've got to ask him straight out and say, listen, is this just a sandwich or is this, are we actually sitting down? <laughs> because I mean, if it's a sandwich, I'll just eat by myself. I yeah. don't want Paul O'Connell abusing me for five minutes while I eat a sandwich. Yeah, be, <laughs> if yep. you're taking the trouble to, you know, sit me down, you know, bring me into an actual restaurant with service, not, not a buffet either. Mm. You know, someone with waiter service. I mean, if you're going to that trouble, then, Okay, fair enough. You've got my respect, O'Connell. Hit me, you know. Dave Foley's just looking across the road and he sees, you know, Peter O'Mahony and a few other boys having a great laugh, thinking, I really want to join them, but I know this is important for my career. still in my ear here. <laughs> Trying to save my career. It's time for a little bit of US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, 40! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Brian Murphy, great to talk to you as always. Now, we've had a couple of weeks off from the slot. And in the meantime, your boys, the San Francisco Giants, are, have gone and qualified. In fact, you're in the middle of a World Series. Oh, my God. It's like I, I needed to take a two-week powder from you guys to go focus on the uh, the boys of summer, the baseball boys who are making their run. Now they're the boys of – you know, the boys of summer, the old phrase from the Roger Kahn book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, which mm. romanticized baseball. These are the boys of October. My beloved San Francisco Giants are doing it again. Guys, this is, I've been with you guys so long. This is their third World Series run in the last five years, and you and I, uh, you guys and me, we've been through it all together. I remember talking to you in Texas in 2010 when I had no voice whatsoever after they'd won their first ever World Series. And, and I know baseball is not a huge thing for the Irish sports fan, but you can relate. We, we tried to relate it to the the once-in-a-lifetime type of thing, you know, Claire hurling in the 90s or whatever, the first time you ever win something. Well, now you've gone from that first time ever to an embarrassment of riches. So now it's like kind of almost an identity crisis, a wonderful identity crisis to go from the one-off magical season that the generations will never forget to, to a chance at a third in five years. And uh, it's already off to a good start in Kansas City, guys. So, yes, your boy U.S. Murph is in 
quite good form these days. I remember that chat we had, Brian, in 2010 from Texas. It was one of the favourite slots that we've done with you. I think we all remember. But <laughs> you, you, I, don't, I don't know if you'd slept at all. And I think, in fairness, most of that was work-related. Uh, you were still going. You'd completely lost your voice. But the, the emotion was still there because it was the first time in so long. Is it any different this time around? Because Are, are you sated by your success or is it still yeah, very exciting? See, I mean, this is good stuff to like kind of talk about as sports fans of um, you know how we are affected differently. I can't lie. I can't lie to myself even. Of course it's not the same. Of course it's not the same. It's like, um, and I think I remember making this analogy with you in 2012 because you know, I've been with you guys so long. I've gone from having no kids to having two kids. <laughs> and uh, when, when you go from your first baby is born, I remember the analogy. It's just so mind-blowing and so life-changing and so incredibly uh, earth-shattering that you'll never forget it. And then when your second baby is born, you're like, this is amazing, but I have been through this before. So you're not that, you know, you're like, yeah, it's incredible. And there's a new life in our household, but yeah, I've done this before. So it's not that big a deal. Well, now imagine your third kid about to be born now. And I don't know where you rank or if any of you guys have siblings or whatever, but I am the third kid of three in the Murphy family here in California. And now I know what my parents must have felt like when I came along, kind of like just yawning and checking their watches. Oh, we got another one coming. Yeah, big deal. Yeah, that's not quite how I am with the Giants. This team has its own incredible magic about it. This team has different personalities about it. But this team also has similar personalities like our the, what they're calling the West Coast Jeter. We talked about Derek Jeter about a month ago, I remember, on the show. We have a guy, a catcher named Buster Posey, who has all the qualities of a Derek Jeter in that he's absolutely impenetrable on and off the field, stoic as can be, productive as can be, classy as can be, never causing problems or fuss, and about to hopefully win his third championship. Remember, Jeter won five, and Posey's only 27. So he's been a part of all three. We got a country pitcher named Madison Bumgarner from Hickory, North Carolina, Hold on, hold wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that yeah. guy's name real? And is that place name Hickory, North Carolina? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you guys, here's the joke. I mean, so this guy, I know, first of all, a guy named Madison is a strange name, right? Usually it's a, it's a girl's name. And, and so you'd think maybe he'd be like kind of a sissy or something. But instead, he's actually the most badass dude named Madison ever because he stands about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, huge, goes about 235, 240, Big, broad shoulders, huge, and he's famous, guys, for, listen to this, he blows snot rockets on the mound. So what he does is he closes, and I don't know if you guys see this in GAA, I imagine it happens a lot with guys running up and down the turf. You got that mucus in the nose, you got to blow it out. So you take that artful one press of the left nostril and blow it out the right, or conversely, press that right nostril and blow it out the left. And he does that multiple times an inning. Multiple and, and when he first broke into the big leagues, people were like, is this guy blowing snot rockets on the mound? What's going on here? Now, it's like people embrace it. You got people walking around San Francisco with jerseys with his number on it that say snot rocket instead of Bumgarner. Yeah. So they've, uh, we've embraced the, the disgusting projectile of nose mucus as our hero's gesture, Madison Bumgarner. So it is a hell of a name, isn't it? And in Hickory, North Carolina, he's from the hills of Western North Carolina. Guys, when he got married, he got married at a very young age. He's only 25. He got married when he was 20, okay, which is, uh, for a big league baseball player, kind of a dubious decision because you're going to be on the road surrounded by women and money for the next 20 years. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. He gave his wife for a wedding present. He gave her a calf, a baby cow. That was his wedding present to her. We were like, out in San Francisco, 
city slickers, super liberal, <laughs> progressive San Francisco were like, did you give your wife a, a cow for a wedding day? He's like, yeah, a baby calf, of course. <laughs> so, so he's a character that was part of 2010 and 2012 and 2014. But there are new guys, too. Jake Peavy's. We have a rookie second baseman out of New York named Joe Panic. We have uh, other guys who uh, were around for one or two of them. But we have a couple st- – and the manager, Bruce Bochy, who's turning really into kind of the Bill Walsh of the new era in the sense that he has a chance to win three. So you can hear. I'm excited. I'm very – Happy, and they are different tales, each one of them, and this one has its own charms. What about Travis Ishikawa as another name there? This is a guy who was uh, on, on the scrap heap a few years back and has become the hero. So listen, I know the deal. Again, I said it earlier in the conversation. I'll say it again. I know baseball is not huge on your guys' radar, so I try to relate the emotion of this to you in ways that you guys can relate to it, and so glad you mentioned that name. Travis Ishikawa is a straight-up great sports story. Forget about baseball and forget about anything. We're talking about a guy who was an average talent, probably at best, a fringe major league baseball player who's constantly barely hanging on to a roster spot and frequently getting cut and dismissed and cast out into the street and then finding his way back to another organization. Since 2010, where he came up with the Giants and was a fringe player on their 2010 World Series team, he's been cut by the Giants. He went to the Milwaukee Brewers. He was cut by the Milwaukee Brewers. He signed with the Baltimore Orioles. He was cut by the Baltimore Orioles. He signed with the Chicago White Sox. He was cut by the Chicago White Sox. He signed with the New York Yankees in a situation where they flew him in on a mo- in the morning, gave him a uniform that day. He went out and played for the Yankees that night, struck out in his first two at-bats, got booed, got benched, and got cut the next what? day. Okay, <laughs> yes, true story. Then he went to the Pittsburgh Pirates, and this was where he thought he finally made it this year. He made the Pittsburgh Pirates opening day lineup, which was a huge deal. They cut him a month later. The Giants picked him up in July, and and when we saw the transaction, we were like, Travis Ishikawa, wow, he's been around. What's he doing? They sent him down to the minor leagues. I don't know if there's no Irish equivalent to the minor leagues of baseball. It is the ultimate small-town, bus-riding, long, glory-free grind with low pay and bad stadiums with poor lighting. The movie Bull Durham. You guys know the movie Bull Durham, right? Yeah. It, it, that's what minor league baseball is all about. You know, a bunch of guys barely hanging on in kind of scruffy conditions. And, guys, the, the, the best part of the Ishikawa story, the human part, is he's 31 years old now. He's got three kids. And he said in July he got hurt. And, and it was right when the Giants were going to call him up for a spot. He got hurt. And he was despondent. And he was talking to his wife on the phone in a motel room. And his wife said to him, this is, prop, this is it. We have three kids. You have to provide for the family this is you have to do something different than this life and you know for, cue the violins and the soaring uh, movie theme music because he says he hangs up the phone and is is weeping in his hotel room he admitted he sat in this little motel room and cried about his life's journey kind of coming to an end called his best friend up in seattle where he grew up now he's a deeply religious man they they read the bible together they read some bible together and it and it kind of grounded ishikawa that night and he decided he said, I don't want to quit in the middle of the year because I have three kids, and they, I don't want their dad to think, them to think their dad's a quitter. So I'm going to play out the rest of this year, and then I'm going to probably retire. What happens? The Giants called him up. 
He got the call up. He came to the team. He's hanging around. He's hanging around on the bench. Our left fielder gets injured. On a whim, the genius, Bruce Bochy, decides Travis Ishikawa is the kind of steady guy who can hold down left field for us, even though he's never played it before. They drop him out there three days before the season ends. The Giants make the playoffs. Travis Ishikawa is our left fielder. It's the craziest thing ever. Flash forward. St. Louis Cardinals, San Francisco Giants, National League Championship Series, bottom of the ninth, 3-3. The Giants have to win to win the pennant. Travis Ishikawa, 41,000 people, including your boy U.S. Murph, on our feet, screaming, <laughs> launches a home run over the fence into the crowd for a walk-off three-run homer that clinches the pennant. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. I mean, the guy comes running around third. He's, the team's tackling him, and the announcers are going crazy. He's going crazy. It was an amazing sports moment. He lives forever now. The guy went from crying in his hotel room in July to lives forever. So there's your story, guys. That's a serious story, Brian. And you guys are going to crush the Royals, aren't you? They're the team you're up against. They're pretty useless. Well, you heard the story about us banning the song Royals by Lord. Did you hear that? No. Yeah, the San Francisco radio stations are taking this seriously. We've banned the song Royals by Lord. Now, it's not that effective of a band because the song's about a year old, right? So... Uh, it's not exactly like it's in heavy rotation. The song always kind of creeped me out, too. I'll be honest. I never really kind of mm-hmm. got the whole uh, goth thing. But uh, we've banned it, so that's our, we're taking our stand against Lord and the song Royals. And poor Kansas City, because what a great story they are on any other level. You know, we've talked about sad sack American sports cities like Cleveland, etc. Kansas City's on that list. The Chiefs have never won a Super Bowl. Uh, or pardon me, they did win one Super Bowl way back in Super Bowl four. And uh, that was, whatever, 45 years ago. And they've never won, they haven't won a World Series since 1985. So they have been, they're working on a 30-year drought. And, and, in fact, the Kansas City Royals had the longest drought in North American sports, baseball, football, basketball, and hockey, of making the playoffs. So when they made it, they were quite a great story. And Kansas City, the people are so nice there. They really are one of the most friendly cities in America. And they got barbecue and they got jazz, Charlie Parker, Count Basie, the whole history of jazz in Kansas City. So it was a great story. It just so happens to be that they have to play us, the Mighty Giants, the black and orange October heroes of Buster Posey and Madison Bumgarners. So they uh, got smacked heavily in game one by Bumgarner, sucking the air out of the entire city. I don't know how they're going to respond to it, but I've got to tell you, winning game one is a huge deal in the World Series, and to do it on the road for the Giants was massive. So we're feeling pretty good, guys. Feeling yep. pretty good. Brian, it looks as though my prediction, based on everything you told me, is that Madison Bumgarner is going to return to the mucus-covered hills of Hickory, North Carolina, as a hero once again. So en- I love that. You, yeah. you could, you're a damn near poet right there, Owen. Enjoy, uh, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the series, Brian. Great to talk oh, to you. Oh, I will. And thanks, guys, for indulging me a little Giants talk. And I'll see you in the parade, okay? See you then. All right, guys. Shane Kern with the kick out. The 42-year-old goalkeeper. Hurling it out from goal. Here he comes. He tucked it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a day for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real dudes are hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time a senior tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one with the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad and if I should say we spoke to Brian ahead uh, for the particularly hardcore US sports fans they'll be aware that there has been a game played since we spoke to Brian last night that was ahead of game two mm. and maybe myself and Brian's confidence in San Francisco has been somewhat misplaced because well, they've been burned in the second match yeah it's, it's one all uh, it's one all uh, the Kansas City Royals won 7-2 last night uh, their impressive bullpen 
uh, which we didn't see a whole lot of on mm. Tuesday night, did the business for them. But, um, I mean, we would uh, we go back to San Francisco with the uh, series tied. So I, I think I think Brian's confidence is still well-placed. The story of that player, Ishikawa, is absolutely unbelievable. I, I quite like the little New York Yankees sojourn. So twenty, pretty much about 24 hours he was in there. Um, gets signed up, as Brian describes there. Rushed into the team, presumably an injury crisis of some sort. Plays badly. Fans getting us back a little bit. Club gets rid of him the next day. Cancels mm. his deal. A little bit of a William Prunier about that, isn't there? Mm. Uh, that's the most famous. Short. This guy could be good. Got a goal. Yeah. Scored a goal and then played a little less well. I think perhaps we many had lost 4-1 to Spurs. Spurs, yeah. Uh, scored, maybe, the goal was against QPR, was it? No, maybe I've got, remember that wrong. But yeah. I mean, he experienced happen. all of the highs and lows of I, yeah. sport there. Unfortunately, I think poor Ishikawa only experienced the lows in his one game at the Yankees. But uh, amazing story that he was so close to mm. quitting until the last few months, really. Just a few games left in the regular season when he came back and then becomes their hero. I did actually watch the, the moment that he hit that home run that Brian talks about to win the pennant. And I'm surprised. It's funny, you hit the home run and you do still have to touch all the bases to get around. The players were losing their minds completely. Uh, totally mobbing him before he was even getting near home plate and you're thinking um, there could seriously be an issue here if he doesn't actually put his foot oh, in that's the That's the worry you're in you. Oh, no. I know, yeah. He knows, don't worry, he'll get the job done. Mm. Fear or not, he knows the rules. Coming up in second half football. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you mean? I'd say it to you, Pace. I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. It's football everywhere, Owen. Football behind us. Football in front of us. Not a lot of football around us, admittedly, but we're moving towards the the one, the football that's in front of us. So we're going to talk about uh, both the stuff that's in front of us and that which is behind us. So let me get this straight. Football in the football show. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Make sure to check out the Irish Times this weekend. By the way, Gavin Comiskey has a big interview with Brian O'Driscoll around his autobiography. We've read it in here, Ken. And I know you are struck by just how amazing a life Brian O'Driscoll has had. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of positivity on these 400 pages. There are. There's a lot of positivity, yeah. Um, I mean, it was was interesting. I mean, you you do get something of a sense of what Brian O'Driscoll is like, I suppose. Um, I mean, he talks about sitting there uh, looking at his Twitter um, you know he's typed out a message and he's not quite sure whether to send it and he's kind of agonising over whether to send it and in the end he deletes it and doesn't send it uh, his rule apparently is that am, am I happy seeing this in the papers um, and much of the autobiography I would say conforms to that rule uh, there isn't too much stuff there that he would be unhappy to see in the papers there was one interesting bit I thought which was um the 2004, it was just after he'd become the captain. Well, he hadn't been captain for too long. And uh, they're playing uh, England. And England are, at this point, the world champions. Uh, they're going to Twickenham. England haven't lost to Twickenham since, you know, since sort of the Roman times. And, uh, you know, they're, they're slaughtering everybody at that time. So young, inexperienced, uh, hot-headed Captain O'Driscoll decides to feed the press some raw meat in the form of... Uh, in the form of a sort of a punchy, uh, audacious interview where he says things like, 
yeah, you know, I wouldn't like to be under the kind of pressure England are under. The only way for them is down from here. Uh, hopefully we can give the prawn sandwich brigade at Twickenham something to, uh, something to go home with. Or something to choke on. Yeah, it was a very famous on. comment at the time, yeah. And as you can imagine, there was much uh, squawking and, and uh, sort of scuffling around in the, in the, uh, the small suburban world of rugby. <laughs> I can't, the, uh, England, England the manager, what's his name? Clive, Clive, Woodward. Clive Woodward. Clive Responded to O'Driscoll with icy menace. Uh, he said, you know, the more experienced you are in this game, the more you learn, it's better to keep quiet. We like to do our talking on the field. And uh, you can imagine, you know, the sort of gulps of, of nerves that Rodrigo was feeling because they're going up against a very formidable England team who completely crushed them the year before and won the World Cup and so on. And they win. Mm. And it's a sensation. <laughs> and the lesson Brian Rodrigo draws from this is... Keep on mouthing? Never again say anything remotely controversial before a match. <laughs> Even though they crushed it. Even though it was a brilliant success. Even though the whole experience was, uh, you know, I, I mean, repeat that a couple of times and you're suddenly rugby's Muhammad Ali. Yeah, if he had taken a different lesson from that moment, we could have had a very, very different Brian O'Driscoll over the last 10 years. I don't think the IRB World Player of the Year would have been in doubt. I think the question would have been how many World Players of the Year is this guy <laughs> going to get? You know, rugby's breakout crossover star. <laughs> You know what I mean? This guy, this guy, you know, they're talking about him in America. They're talking about him in Japan. He's big in Japan. You know what I mean? He's like, he's like Bill Murray and Los Angeles advertising whiskey in the <laughs> Japanese market. Uh, but instead, Brian O'Driscoll is like, I think because he's quite uncomfortable with the, well, first of all, feels uncomfortable putting extra pressure on his team and his teammates. And also doesn't want people to think that he's kind of in some way uppity. I thought that was funny because I always felt that was quite a calculated move at the time that he was either just having a laugh or felt that it was a psychological ploy that was going to get under the skin of the English team. But it seems like it was just a slightly loosely uh, worded ghost-written column. By him, you know, he, he probably said a few things to the ghostwriter that he might have intended. I, oh, I think the, I think the prawn sandwich thing was, was definitely... Uh, yeah, you don't just throw that in there. Yeah, but, but I mean, in terms of the... I think he kind of... The way that I read it anyway, I mean, he was kind of looking back and thinking, mm, I, that was a, it was a mistake to do that, to, that, that. The idea of doing that was a mistake. So even though, yeah, I'm sure the lines were kind of pre-cooked, uh, the idea was maybe a reflection of, or he feels a reflection of his own experience. I was really looking forward. I was so excited when I first heard Paul Kimmage was doing the book uh, a few years ago now, and there was so much time uh, had elapsed, and I would have thought that Paul had got a lot of work done on it that I was really excited about what was going to happen then of course the bombshell that that wasn't going to work out and that was earlier this year so Alan English uh, so I, I can't really get over that because I, I was thinking what this book would have been with uh, having had Paul Kimmage work on it for a number of years Alan English stepped in fairly last minute by the standards of autobiographies uh, just a number of months ago and you know he's, he's a, an editor as well as a, a writer so it's very well put together very well threaded together uh, like you say Ken I suppose he it says himself regularly in the book that he's conscious of his, his image and the image that you put out at press conferences is not really yourself. You, you have to live up to a certain, you have to act a certain way in public. So you are reading that thinking how much, it's the same thing that Roy Keane said at the press conference for his autobiography. Is this the real Roy Keane? Roy Keane goes, no, hmm. it's part of me. And there's, there's some Roy Keane in there, but this is all a game, isn't it? Yeah. So you do have to take that on board when you're reading these autobiographies. But there were some really interesting passages. The, his worry about losing the Irish captaincy to Paul O'Connell I thought was fascinating. Uh, his conversation. So Paul O'Connell, Declan Kidney comes in. A lot of Munster players are brought into the team. Paul O'Connell is playing some serious rugby. They've just won a second Heineken Cup. And I'm just thinking, oh dear. And this went on for, it seemed, quite a long time that he thought Paul O'Connell 
probably wanted the captaincy or was going to take the captaincy. At one stage, he talks, O'Driscoll says, there's only one guy I can talk to about this, and that's Ron O'Gara, because he's so central to it. He gets on really well with the Leinster players. He's a Munster guy. He's the one person I can talk to. And O'Gara, he asks him, do you think I should still be captain? Because O'Gara's been bigging up Paul O'Connell in the media for the Lions captaincy, amongst other, amongst other things. And O'Gara says... Yeah, I do still think you should be captain, but you need to get fitter, <laughs> which is a fairly ballsy thing to say that maybe only Ron O'Gara could say. Eventually, there's a scene where Paul O'Connell seeks O'Driscoll out and says, listen, mate, I'm not actually looking for the captaincy. I'm behind you, so I don't want any tension between us. And O'Driscoll's thinking, well, that's fairly legendary that he came in and said that because it was a, a bit awkward and I wasn't sure whether to have that conversation. There's also the, the concussion angle is interesting. He mentions quite a few concussions in the book. Uh, it doesn't shy away from it, although he never really goes into any of the possible long-term impacts of that again I guess uh, when you're the person who's had those uh, had those concussions maybe you don't even want to think about that maybe he hasn't doesn't feel he's had any of the the side effects from it that you can sometimes have in the shorter term but the fact that against France he manages to get back on the field was worrying at the time this is the incident a couple of years back that featured mm. in head games against New Zealand in the match that we almost won last year he was taken off even though he passed all the tests so he, he, the doctor takes him off the field. They do the tests. He passes them all, answers all the right questions. And the doctor says, no, you're actually still not going back on. because, And, and that's great great work on the doctor's part that his feeling, his intuition was this guy shouldn't go back on. It is worrying that he was able to pass those tests. But my favourite story from the book, Kent, if you, oh, you were going to come back in there? Just, I mean, obviously it, it comes out a couple of weeks after Roy Keane's book and you can see a couple of the differences between the two of them quite I mean, it's not as though that's going to come as a surprise to anybody. <laughs> but, but O'Driscoll is, has got a much more um, kind of relentlessly positive way of looking at the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, there's a bit, there's, he, he, he talks about the whole spear tackle thing. And in such a tone of, like, this kind of exhausted tone of, I, I hate talking about this, but I understand that this is my stupid autobiography, so I have to put in something about it. Um, I hate talking about this. I hate when anybody even reminds me of it. It just sickens me to even think about it. It's like the whole thing. He just wants, literally would, would rather that the memory no longer existed in his brain. Mm. Although, you know, he says something like, you don't get to choose all of the things that you're going to be remembered for. People will remember. But it's just, he just hates the existence. It's not like, I mean, I, can, I was thinking to myself, if, this, if something like this had ever happened to Roy Keane, well, something a bit like this did happen to Roy Keane, actually. Uh, in terms of, it wasn't anywhere near as serious as a spear tackle, but Alfie Holland did stand over him shouting about fake injuries. Yeah. Roy Keane's still talking about that. <laughs> we we saw what he did, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, he talked about it in a book 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago, and he's talking about it still now. So he's kind of, he nursed it into a huge... He he. When things like this happen, Keane has a tendency, I think, to to make a really big grievance out of it. Like, say, for instance, he's got some great comments today about, you know, Man United, uh, Disneyland, Man United land with Mickey Mouse running around everywhere, right? All these all these former Man United players who won't hear a word said against Man United, you know, which is brilliant. I mean, this is brilliant yeah. to hear to hear <laughs> this. It's hilarious. You know, I don't think you're going to hear um, ever uh, Brian Driscoll talking about Leinsterland. And, and and Lenny the Lion or whatever his name is Leo the Lion <laughs> Leo the Lion right uh, what the hell he, he you know he doesn't have this he doesn't have this uh, ability I think to sort of to build a web of grievance around uh, a, a grievance an actual historical grievance and sort of clump it up into something massive which maybe is why Roy Keane writes more interesting books although O'Driscoll does have a uh, 
maybe he does have a, uh, an idea of a Black Rock land, Ken. Black Rock College land, where he'd gone to school, right? Four years, this is 2001, four years after he'd, uh, he'd stopped playing in school. I'm recognised late at night in Grafton Street by three Black Rock College boys with pints on board. Two of them are full of the joys of spring. The third guy says nothing until he sticks a hand behind the buttons of his shirt. You know what, he says? I've got something that you will never, ever effing have. Yeah, what's that? A Junior Cup winner's medal. It's resting against his chest, hanging from a chain. He pulls it out and shoves it at me. Take a good look. You're never going to have one of these. By this time, I've got full five. Uh, sorry, I've got fifteen full international caps. O'Driscoll says, uh, "Yeah." I mean, to me, it sounds as though the guy was probably joking. Although you can't, you can't, you can't oh, say unless you see someone. No, Ken. Why is he wearing it on a chain? This is what O'Driscoll yeah, says, it, right? There's a part of me that would like to set him straight. You, my friend, are an arch clown. And remind him of, of his unfortunate affliction. I know you're jarred, but you were sober when you put that medal on. <laughs> That's another interesting uh, difference between these two books. Um, there's no, there's quite a few uh, moments when O'Driscoll is talking about things that happen when he's talking to people, to sort of random people or people who write letters to him, yep. or kids he meets. Mm. He likes kids to be well mannered. He, you know, he likes kids to ask him nicely for an already. Can kind of annoys him when when children are rude. Uh, one thing that really annoys him is that there's some kid going around spreading rumours that he didn't give out any sweets at Halloween. <laughs> that's a really sounds a little bit loopy when he hears that. No, he's thinking that's not true. I actually give out loads of sweets. Now, <laughs> now you don't hear this. You don't hear these kind of stories from Roy Keane, right? You hear stories about what happens. He only is talking about things that happen with other people in the game, mm. like say. The guy, the Reading coach, what was his name? Kevin Dillon? Yeah. Who he, who he choked or, or uh, things that different people said to him. I, I can't remember a single thing that he says about someone, a random person, you yeah. know. No, the main thing he says about random people is that he always has his guard up, Keane says, that he, Keane says he's always ready for a load of abuse. Yeah. It's a really grim way of living. And he says... Now, it's never happened. It I've never happen. been abused individually by people outside of football grounds, yeah. but I'm always ready for it. Well, he, he's talking there, actually, in, particularly in the context of, uh, of as a going to football stadiums as a media person. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of there in a suit or whatever, and he knows people, can, people are going to recognize him and maybe someone will have a go. And he says it hasn't okay. happened. I don't know if, he's, if he means walking around Rent in Cheshire, you know. If, if, I, think you can, I think if you were a passerby who had a go at Roy Keane, on the street in Cheshire or whatever, wherever it is he's living now. I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't do that. No, I'd say it rarely happens. And I'd say if it does happen, I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to just necessarily take it lying down. But I, he's also not necessarily going to put it in a, in a book yeah. either. I mean, he should do a book based on Roy Keane, my interactions Random with Random encounters, yeah. brief encounters with Roy Keane. <laughs> I mean... That's a book idea. Maybe it could be... A, maybe the technology is almost upon us to, to have a, a kind of a crowd-written book. Yeah, yeah. Whereby yeah. everybody who had stopped Roy Keane for a selfie <laughs> in an airport or a train station or ah, whatever ah. was able to get together and put their selfie in and give their little story of, of what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, That's I mean, an amazing idea for I've a seen, website. I've seen, and we're I've already stop seen talking quite about a few. it now, Ken, because we could make many thousands of euros so from this. As you're well aware, this stage, there's not, um, you know, maybe the, the one night stint in jail aside, there's not massive controversy to the O'Driscoll book. But I don't know if anyone expected that necessarily. It's still well worth the read. You should take your time, take some time, even if it's around Christmas time. Read out the read the Brian O'Driscoll book. Read the Roy Keane book. See what these guys have to say about themselves uh, in the wrong words. Comparative literature, indeed. Yeah, and Gavin Cumminsky's piece is on Saturday with uh, Brian O'Driscoll in the Irish Times. Now we're delighted to welcome into studio. 
one of the world's leading sports psychologists, Dr. Mike Gervais of the Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. Mike, uh, you're very welcome, first of all. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, sports psychology is a field, I think, that some, so, certainly some sports have taken longer to accept it maybe than others. What about your own introduction to, uh, to the sports world? Were you welcomed with open arms? Oh, yeah, that's a good... Yeah, in, you know, the first hurdle in this space is um, was, I should say, the shift between, you know, is this dysfunction-based? Like, is there something wrong with somebody? Is that why they need a sports psychologist? And, and what's happened now is that it's an asset, and people are looking to train their minds just like they're training their bodies. And that's, that's kind of where the industry is. How much of it is about when you're dealing with a, an individual uh, sports person, or a, a person within a team, but on an individual basis, how much of it is down to what's going on in his life away from the field? Is a lot of it about that, about how comfortable, how happy he is? So that's a good question. I, uh, let me bounce it back. How much do you think? I would uh, imagine quite yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. Well, no, yeah. no more than any of us, we walk in and if we have an issue today, come in and do the show, <laughs> you have to be wary that that's not going to show in your work. Yeah, so... You know, there's on-field and off-field, and both of it matter equally as much. The off-field part of it, um, it, we see sports people now, professional sports people, and there is this disconnect maybe between, I presume this is the case in America, I'm not sure, but certainly over here and in the UK, there's a dis- people see these athletes getting richer and richer and maybe being less connected in a human way with the supporters as they would have been many years ago. I guess you must see a different side of it. You must see these guys... You have to see them as real human beings to get into them. They're a real deal. They're, I mean, we're all, you know, we all have flesh, you know, and we, we, all, we all have struggles <laughs> and we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations and you get to see the real person behind the, the lights and the glamour. You know, that's the deal. How much of their identity is wrapped up in what they do, do you think? And does that start from quite a young age, these sports people? Yeah, so there's this idea called identity foreclosure. And at a young age, when somebody is really good at what they do, uh, they can get trapped that that's their only identity. And so identity foreclosure is something that this is the reason we see, uh, you know, during transition or when folks are um, leaving the sport that they can really struggle um, because they don't know who they are at the end. Well, that idea is interesting, Mike, because I guess there's, uh, that could work two ways in that if you're if you're bound up with your sport from a young age, there are probably positives to that. I, mean, I assume there are. They, you know, you can feel quite good about yourself as a 13-year-old when you're the best in class. Yeah, so <laughs> to become really good at something, let's talk about the science of excellence for a minute. You've got to chip in and, and, and chip all in. And that's the risk at a young age when a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old chips all in. Uh, they, they haven't fully explored all the other parts of their life yet. And they put all of, like, as an adult, we understand that. But as a kid who hasn't explored the other parts of life, you know, there, there's a risk there. And this is why at the other side of it, it there's a challenge for retirement. I mean, you'd have to kick me out screaming, you know, and, and uh, to do something or to, to not be able to do something I'd love to do. Yeah. Yeah. So is there much uh, done for people on that side of it when, when a player retires? Is there any passageway to a normal life? No. No, it's just, it's yeah, just you're you know, gone, you're not yeah, a pro it's sports a, It's anymore. a business, you yeah. know. And some of the clubs take care of folks um, by, you know, pulling them into management or, um, you know, if they've got a talent there. But uh, for the most part, it's, um, you know, there's something in the NFL and American football. It's a well-known statistic that um, uh, 87% of folks within two years of retiring are um, broke, divorced, or both. 
You're that's all, a big yeah. number. It really is, that's yeah. That's a big number, yeah. I remember there was a 30 for 30 documentary on that called Broke, and it was just yeah. ex-footballer ex after ex-footballer just describing how they lost their, in some cases, not even millions, I guess, if guys are only in it for a year or two. We all think that they're becoming absolute multimillionaires, but maybe that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, even 87%, I mean, that's not, you know, that's basically everywhere you look. <laughs> Most people. Yeah. yeah, that's the 9 out of 10 of the people that you can see in your dressing room two years later will be broke or divorced. And or I think both. it's getting better right now because, <laughs> yeah. of, because of that documentary, because of the research, it's getting better. Yeah. You know, but I'm more about um, spending time figuring out how people are excellent at what they do. Um, how do they stay grounded when they've got millions of people, you know, watching? Uh, I think one of the toughest things for folks to experience is um, being able to drop in and have a clear thinking pattern during moments of intensity. Uh, especially right after a mistake happens, can they recenter themselves and allow them, you know, use their minds to be able to access their gifts, their talents, the, the craft that they've worked to refine over time, and you know that that's that that's a trainable skill to be able to do so, and it begins with this idea and this concept called mindfulness. Um, what is know, what exactly is mindfulness? I have heard it referenced. Uh, can you explain to us what that actually means in a sporting context? Yeah, so it's not just a sporting context. It's something that the so let's let's do a quick little tour of history here. Is that why were the samurai warriors attracted to Zen Buddhism? It's because of the central idea of being able to train their minds to be fully present. You know, even during the most intense moments you can imagine. You know, which is a battle to death. And so this idea of mindfulness is um, simply paying attention to the present moment without judgment, and being able to do that in moments that are boring, in moments that are intensely rich and difficult, um, it can provide an incredible capacity to be able to um, access, you know, your greatest talents. The the cliche that a sports person will trot out before, your Seattle Seahawks last year, for example, are in the, in the Super Bowl and they're having to do that radio row and talk to all these reporters and uh, try to make out as though it's just another game. And in their own heads, I'm sure that's what they're probably trying to do. Is, or, 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 or how do you make sure that... Uh, that sports people actually believe that because we all know watching that the Super Bowl isn't just another game. It's the most important moment of most of these guys' careers. Yeah, you know, that's actually something that is... Um, I'll, I'll take point with that for a minute. Really? Is that... Yeah, so... there's the, Okay, so this is, might be esoteric, but let's kind of uh, run through this. In the, truth of the, uh, in the truth of it, there's no such thing as a big game. There's no such thing as a big play. There's no such thing as a big half or a big quarter. There's no such thing as a big moment. Every moment is the only moment we get. So every moment, by definition, is big. It's the only one we get. And so um, Coach Carroll, the head coach for the Seattle Seahawks, uh, has done something brilliant for that club, is that the first practice, he sets the tone. He says, okay, guys, this is a championship practice. The first preseason game, which on record doesn't, doesn't yeah. actually hold you know, weight. He says, okay, this is our first um, championship opportunity. So our first game of the season, this is our first championship opportunity. Our third game, our fifth game, our fifth, 15th practice, it's a championship practice. And so every game and every practice is held with high regard. And then so whatever, what happens over time when if you're fortunate enough to arrive at the Super Bowl, okay, guys, this is a championship match. It's the same thing. It's a championship opportunity. And so then there's a conditioning that takes place to, to really embrace this idea that there's no such thing as a big game. They're, they all matter. And if you drill that all the way down, there's no such thing as a big moment. This moment, the moment that we have now, the moment that your listeners are, are, are listening to, is it's the only moment 
all of us. <laughs> well, if I was a player, though, what, I, what I'd be thinking there is, well, this is, maybe I just don't have the mental strengths as well as a lot of other facets needed to be in the uh, to play in mm-hmm. the NFL. But I'd be thinking, well, <laughs> they this, are big and strong. Yeah, yeah exactly. Fast, I'm a, yeah. a little, a little bit too small and, and weak, I think. But the the issue I would be thinking is, well, this this feels different because there's this big two week lead into this game. It's a totally different routine. There's a lot more media. There's a, there, there are distractions off the field. So whatever, right. so how do you deal with that side of it? Yeah, you're right. There are distractions. Um, the only thing that's different, though, between, let's say, a Super Bowl or a World Championships or an Olympics, the only thing that's different is that more people are watching. And then so the central question that we ask athletes, um, whether it's an Olympic Games or a Super Bowl championship, is – you know, are you going to change who you are and what you do because others are watching? And the answer for the strong, you know, the strong is hell no. Mm. You know, that's that's not what we're trying to do. And so when you can put it in context there, the field stays the same. You know, the ball weight stays the same. You know, all of it stays the same. Um, so it's it, when you put it in context, you can actually take a sigh and, 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 and breathe into it. Matter of fact, while, while we're on this word about breathing, breathing is one of the most central skills we use in high-performance psychology, you know, teaching people how to um, train their minds to focus on just one thing. And when that one thing is a breath, it does something else, is that it calms the entire system. So this idea of mindfulness, one of the trainings is breathing, breathing training. And it teaches us how to physiologically reset our body to activate what's called a parasympathetic nervous system, which is that part of us that, you know, recovers after we've had great stress. So for all of us, you know, focusing on and doing breathing training is an incredible way to reset our system because all of us live in a high-stress, get-after-it life, right? Mm. Like modern times now, it's an off-terrain experience. And, and if we can invest a bit of our time and our, our energy to train our minds to be still, which is focusing on the breath, uh, and it's also resetting our system for calmness, it's a brilliant use of time. Brilliant. Well, one of the, one of the key... Uh, things that were, that uh, the Seahawks had to deal with in the two weeks running up to the Super Bowl last year was the most breathless interview I think that I've ever heard, the Richard Sherman post-match interview. You know what, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking that in a situation like that, w- if you're, you're watching that as the Seattle Seahawks team psychologist, what are you thinking when you're watching Richard Sherman roar down the, the lens like that to uh, yeah. addressing America? So the first order is, um, I'll share my experience, but Richard Sherman uh, graduated from one of the top universities in the world and, you know, with a huge GPA. So, and he's really smart. He's a very, very intelligent man. And he understands his craft really well and he's incredibly personable. And so then with that kind of tone, there's a a brilliant man that's highly highly, um, skilled at his craft. And then seeing his response. So let's rewind. The first part of that response is he just got tested. Man against man, you know, in a in a in a in an arena full of observers with high intensity in it, and he got tested and he came back victorious in that test. And he runs over to his competitor a bit aggressively and puts out his hand, you know, to to congratulate him. But it was kind of a punk move, if you will, right? It was a little (laughs) bit aggressive, right? And I can relate to that myself, so that's why I say it. And then uh, his competitor shoved him in the face. So he just got tested in an arena, just man against man against a highly skilled uh, quarterback and a highly skilled competitor, um, you know, wide receiver. And it, it, it feels like, I think, what, if we can relate, 
what it feels like uh, right before, right during a bar fight, and but you actually don't have the fight. So all of that system inside of us is that 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 primordial system is activated, and then someone were to shove a microphone in your face, you know, right? So that's basically what happened, and um, yeah, it didn't capture the best side of him, but it was it was an honest moment for him. Um, capturing the intensity of what it feels like to be a man in the arena. And it's nothing that would worry you. You don't look at that and think, oof, he, he lost the head there a little bit. No, I think what's amazing about elite athletes is that they um, truly elite athletes that are consistent um, and successful on a world stage is that they can, t- they can contain themselves. They can hold that razor's edge uh, at any moment in time. And then when it's over... <sighs> you know, there's a moment where they can really release, and 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 that was his one of his yeah. releases. Yeah, and, and I find that that razor's edge that you talk about really interesting because watching the Seahawks last year mm-hmm. and that relentless uh, defense that they had, that was exactly it. That they were able to take a level of of aggression that's nearly, you know, it would be frowned upon in society, and still perform in a very cold-hearted, cold-blooded way while maintaining that huge level of aggression. And I find that very interesting from where you're coming from as well in that, in that locker room. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the razor's edge is a great way to put it because they're right on the, on the verge of um, skill and aggression and the, the combination of the two can, go, can be combative with each other. And, you know, it's a, it's a room full of very intense men. Do you have to connect with the coach? I mean, do you have to actually really have a close working relationship or at least um, a close, or maybe even more so a close personal relationship? In this case, Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Is that important for, for, your, for you to feel you can get your message across to the players? Yeah, so let me do another little tour of history. I think you guys will appreciate this. That My first introduction to pro sports, I was as green as you can imagine, you know, right out of graduate school and uh, the general manager and medical director brought me in and um, kind of, I didn't realize the politics in pro sports. So I was so green. And uh, the, you had all the ideas. You yeah. Like, I'm going to yeah, change. Yeah. And, and, and so here I am kind of getting it. It was professional hockey. I got introduced um, to the coach and I look over and the coach wasn't as welcoming as I would have hoped. <laughs> okay. So uh, we have a nice little chit chat. He brings me, um, he brings me back the next day to introduce me. So he's being for, I'm being forced on him. And, uh, he, he bags the guys. He skates them extra hard. He puts them in their locker room, uh, in their lockers. Now they're sweating. They're agitated. He keeps them in their wet gear, and he brings me out. And he says, okay, guys, uh, if you're fucked up in the head, go talk to this guy. <laughs> Sorry for the language. Yeah, it was, that's a quote. And so, um, so there I am standing right in the middle of the locker room with all these agitated men looking at me like, what are we doing? Yeah. And so that was my first introduction to pro sports. And so it's gotten better. <laughs> and so C- Coach Carroll so, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, Coach Carroll is, um, the first time we had dinner together, it felt like we were sharing a similar passion and we'd studied from the same people and, and we, um, we were trying to solve the same questions. And so it, it was a natural relationship, so much so that um, I'm, I'm honored to, he and I have created a joint venture together to be able to take the lessons that... Um, his intellectual property, my intellectual property, and what he's a wizard at is switching on a culture, a high-performing culture. And I've spent my time in the trenches with some of the best in the world, you know, working to maximize their potential. We put the two together, and now we're um, uh, pulling back the curtain on how we've done what we've done uh, for, you know, a Fortune 
100 you know, companies. There's a traditional view in soccer, I think, in the UK anyway, and it's slowly changing, but it's, it's quite slow. Um, and that is that the manager, the head coach or the manager in the case of, of a soccer team, he has to be the psychologist. That's a big part. A big part of what he's supposed to be doing is actually motivating the players and getting them in the right headspace. So what's the need for any outside help? Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, what would you think of that? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thought. The head coach, uh, it all begins and finishes with the head coach. I mean, that's the culture's defined. Um, the, the entire deal is, is, is set the tone by him or, or her, if, it, if you will. So, but they're not a trained psychologist, right? And so a trained psychologist understands the science behind behavioral change and understands um, the reasons and, and understands the different tools at, that we have access to to bring the best out of people. Great coaches do have a keen and rich understanding of the psychology of human behavior. They're amazing. I've learned so much from them. It's unbelievable. However, um, my experience has been that motivation is a word that um, I think is not well understood. Almost everyone I work with is highly motivated. They're driven. They want to be their personal best. They might not know how to consistently do it. And they might, if you're going to explore your own potential, you're going to run into a place where you're on the edge of your limits. And then what do you do there? So that's where the science of sports psychology really enters for, for folks that are um, really pushing on the envelope to what's possible and they want to be able to maximize their stuff. Is there a particular motivation that's known to be the most effective so because some people are motivated by even within sports i'm sure some people are motivated by the status some by the money some purely by what's going on on the field is there any one that you look at and think this is the best this is the ideal way to be motivated to perform your rest yeah so there's two categories of motivation internal and external so external motivations are recognition and fame and you know, money and big house big car you know whatever comes uh, on that stuff and yeah those are great they're just temporary that's the, that's the challenge with external motivation is once you get it, you've got it, and then that pleasure, that rush of dopamine in our neurochemistry goes away, and now you have to chase another big watch or another big car or another you know, recognition or, from somebody else. So it's a little bit of a trap. It's like an endless string that you're pulling on to, to have more. And the trap in there is that those things that are external outside of you are not in your control. And so it tends to pe- put people in a position of needing more from something that's not in their control. It's a little bit of a trap. It doesn't mean it's bad. But if we could choose, we'd, we would want somebody that has a high internal motivation. So what does that mean? We, we're looking for people that are internally driven. They love the way it feels to sharpen their craft. They love the way it feels to be tested with the best in the world. And they love what it feels like to be fully immersed in a moment and access their skill at the at the highest level, and they're infatuated with what that they're infatuated with the quest for that and the feelings that come along with that that competitive drive to do so. So, in a perfect world, what we're looking for is someone that's got that high internal drive, but also can appreciate the external rewards. A bit, bit of it. the external, yeah, stuff why not? Is all right as well. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, I think but so. It, but it it kind of sounds to me like you could never be a truly great sportsman when purely motivated by external forces. Would that be, is that an unfair uh, assessment? No, I've seen people that are primarily motivated by, you know, the glitz and glam and they have done phenomenal things on the pitch. And so, um, you know, it, it, 
for me, it's a question of sustainability. And masters of craft really have an, a, a high internal drive. So, no, I think you can have just you, – you, you can go either way is what I'm saying. Mm. But in a perfect world, if I want to be part of the develop, development and refinement of somebody's craft – uh, high internal drive is part of it. All right. Listen, Dr. Mike Gervais, it's been great talking to you today. The Seahawks, it's been a little bit rocky so far this year. How, oh, yeah, I had to bring it up. How are you, how are you set <laughs> for the rest of the season? Yeah, no, no. It's, um, yeah, so we're, we're right now we're 500. And um, it, it's, the NFL is highly competitive. And any given Sunday, like, the people across the way are intense and they're skilled and they're good. And so there's nothing, you know, never want to take away from that opportunity to uh, to say that, but at the same time, we are um, we're leaning in. We're we're you know we're figuring out our stuff. We just had a, a pretty large trade that just took place, and um, and so you know we're figuring out our system and figuring out our approach. And um, you know this is a the Seattle Seahawks is a room full of optimists. You know something good's about to happen. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Listen, uh, great to talk to you, Dr. Mike Gervais. Thank you. Thank you. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Just go back, Murph, to something Mike was talking about there, the motivation. Uh, the internal versus external motivation. It was quite... He clearly... He, he believes that internal... It's probably more sustainable to have an internal sort of a, a motivation uh, rather than fully base your want for success on the cars and all the rest of it and mm. the, but when you put it to him that okay so it's just it, it's a really top sports person can't only have extra motivation he rolled back a little bit and said well no no that can work sometimes uh, wanting all those nice things can get a guy a really good career yeah which is interesting I mean over the course of like a 15 year career I suppose you I think the key there is to just always hang out with people who are richer than you so money can always be the thing that drives you as long as the people that you hang out with are considerably richer than you. So if you're still hanging out, if, if you're really rich and you're hanging out with, you know, relatively poor people, then you'll feel like you've got enough money. Whereas if you hang out with really rich people, people who are only richer than you, you'll always feel poor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the external motivation can actually keep going for as long as you like. What if you become the highest paid player at a club? Then you... That definition is gone. Yeah, you have to move club. All <laughs> right, okay, you have to come. I mean, it's, it's quite obvious. And if you're the highest, highest player, player in the league, league move well, leads. then hang out with uh, Fortune 500 chief executives. Mm. Uh, and if that doesn't float your boat, then just keep going right up the line until you reach, you know, Warren Buffett or someone like that. The reason Mike is in Ireland, by the way, is that Guinness have an ad airing on November the fifth, uh, from November the fifth, about Munster's win over the All Blacks in nineteen seventy-eight. But what, wait a minute, sure, a province could never beat the All Blacks. So everyone <laughs> it ha- knows no, that. No, it happened, Murph. It happened. What? This is the great untold story of Irish sport. Uh, Mike and Joe Schmidt have been talking a bit about the mindset required to win at the highest level around this. Mike has the. Int- I, I mentioned. I think we kind of touched on some of it there. But uh, apart from the Seahawks, he's worked with the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, 
Felix Baumgartner, the great space jumper, if you're aware of him, and the American, the US military. You should be aware of them. Most of us are aware of the US military. Of course. At this point, I think. Uh, have a listen to... The <laughs> uh, it's a world without Brad, of course, the US military. In every corner of the world, they've heard of yeah. the US military. Oh, hard, hard to ignore. Have a listen to the Irish Times second captain's football podcast later today. Loads to talk about there from the Champions League over the week. Uh, do check out our website, secondcaptains.com, and follow us on Twitter. That's it, and Captain. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, uh, right. uh, Kieran, and thanks, Owen. So now it's okay to swap jumpers. Yeah, let's do it. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those, those boys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.